On today's episode of the Her Historically podcast, I am going to be diving into the story of Josephine Baker, a renowned American-born French performer, a civil rights activist, and war hero. And I'll be honest, I didn't know much about Josephine Baker before I started the show. I had seen what she looked like. I know she did rather exotic type dancing, but I didn't know that much about her. So I was really excited to have learned more about her and have the chance to be able to tell her story. Josephine Baker was born as Frida Josephine McDonald in St. Louis, Missouri on June 3rd of 1906. And she grew up in abject poverty. Her mother, Carrie, was adopted in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1886 by Richard and Elvira McDonald, both of whom were former slaves of African and Native American descent. Baker's estate and some other sources identify this vaudeville drummer Eddie Carlson as her natural born father but there are other sources that dispute this and there's been difficulty of establishing the truth of her early life given these different reworkings by numerous biographers and her own telling contradictory reworkings of her story. But as a child, she worked a lot of different type jobs, including as a domestic servant when she was only eight years old, and she worked as a street performer. One woman abused her, burning her hands when she put too much soap in the laundry, and she spent much of her early life on 212 Targhee Street, known by some in St. Louis as Johnson Street, in the Chestnut Valley neighborhood, which was a racially mixed, low-income neighborhood near Union Station. It consisted mainly of roaming houses, brothels, and apartments that didn't have indoor plumbing. So she, again, grew up in abject poverty. She often was hungry as a child, and she had to develop these street smarts playing in railroad yards of Union Station. Her mother would go on to marry Arthur Martin, who she said was, quote, a kind but perpetually unemployed man. She would go on to have a son and two more daughters with him. And in 1917, when she was only 11, she witnessed a lot of racial violence that was happening in East St. Louis at the time. In a speech many, many years later, recalling what she had seen, she said, quote, I can still see myself standing on the West Bank of the Mississippi, looking over into East St. Louis and watching the glow of the burning of Negro homes lighting the sky. We children stood huddled together in bewilderment, frightened to death with the screams of the Negro families running across this bridge with nothing but what they had on their backs as their worldly belongings. So with this vision, I ran and ran and ran. By 12 years old, she had dropped out of school, and at 13, she worked as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club at 3133 Pine Street. She also lived as a street child in the slums of St. Louis, sleeping in cardboard shelters and scavenging for food in garbage cans. She would make a living doing street corner dancing. While she was at the Old Chauffeur's Club, she met Willie Wells, and she subsequently married him at the age of only 13. But that marriage lasted less than a year. Once she divorced Wells, she found work again as a street performer in a group called the Jones Family Band. After consistent badgering of her show manager, it led her to being recruited for the St. Louis Chorus Vaudeville Show. At the age of 13, she would head to New York, and this was during the height of the Harlem Renaissance, and she would perform at the Plantation Club, which was Florence Mills' old stomping ground. After several auditions, she was able to secure a role in the chorus line of a touring production of the groundbreaking and hugely successful Broadway review, Shuffle Along. That same year, she married her second husband, William Howard Baker, and she was only 15 at the time. 
Fearing that she would be overshadowed by these other dancers, she used her position to introduce a hint of comedy into her routine, helping her to stand out from the other dancers. Once she became of age, she was transferred to the Broadway production of Shuffle Along, where she remained for several months until the show ended in 1923. She was then cast in the Chocolate Dandies, which opened in September of 1921. And again, she was in the chorus line. That show ran for 96 performances and closed in November of 1925. And it was during this time that she would begin to see significant career growth. She would find her most success, though, when she moved to Paris that same year. She would perform in La Revue Negri at the Champs-Élysées Theater at the age of 19. She would say, quote, I became famous first in France in the 20s. I just couldn't stand America, and I was one of the first colored Americans to move to Paris. Oh, yes, Bricktop was there as well. Me and her were the only two, and we had a marvelous time. Of course, everyone who was anyone knew Bricky. And they got to know Miss Baker as well. She was an instant success in Paris because of her erotic dancing and for pretty much appearing practically nude on stage. She had a successful tour in Europe and she would break her contract and return back to France in 1926. This would be the year that she set the standard for a lot of her future acts, especially her famous banana dance. Her success coincided with the Art Deco movement and this renewal of interest in non-Western forms of art, including African art. She represented one aspect of the Art Deco fashion. In some of her later shows, she was often accompanied on stage by a pet cheetah she had named Chiquita, who was often adorned in this diamond collar. And her cheetah frequently would escape into the orchestra pit and terrorize the musicians, which added this excitement to her shows. After a while, she was considered the most successful American entertainer working in France. And even Ernest Hemingway called her, quote, the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. She would spend hours talking to him in Paris and bars. Picasso drew paintings depicting her beauty. And Jean Couteau became friendly with her and helped vault her to this international stardom. She endorsed a, quote, Baker Fix hair gel, bananas, shoes, cosmetics, among a lot of other products. In 1929, she became the first black star to visit Yugoslavia while on tour up in Central Europe via the Orient Express. While she was traveling in Yugoslavia, she was accompanied by, quote, Count Giuseppe Pepito Albertino, who was a Sicilian former stonemason and passed himself off as a count. He had persuaded her to let him manage her. And he was not only her manager, but they were lovers as well. They couldn't marry, however, because she was still technically legally married to her second husband, William Baker. She would also release her most successful song during this period, Je Dois Amour, in 1931, which expresses a sentiment that she has two loves, her country and Paris. She also starred in four films, which only found success in Europe. The silent film, Siren of the Tropics, Zuzu, Princess Tam Tam, and Fosse Alert. French people loved her, and she became one of Europe's most popular and highest paid performers. Despite her popularity in France, though, she was never really able to attain that same equivalent reputation here in the States. When she starred in a revival of Ziegfeld Foley's on Broadway in 1936, it wasn't commercially successful and she would be replaced by Gypsy Rose Lee. 
Time Magazine even referred to her, quote, as a Negro wrench whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside of Paris. Other critics would say she was too thin and dwarf-like. She would go back to Europe heartbroken from this review, and it contributed to her becoming a legal citizen of France and giving up her American citizenship. She returned to Paris in 1937, and by this time she would marry again the French industrialist Jean Lyon. When World War II broke out, Josephine worked as a spy for the French resistance. She was recruited by the French military intelligence agency as a honorable correspondent. And she worked with the head of the French counterintelligence in Paris. Because she was a celebrity, she was able to freely move around Europe and she used that to gather information on Nazis. She housed people who were eager to help the free French effort and supplied them with visas. She would often visit neutral nations such as Portugal, as well as some in South America. She carried information for transmissions to England about airfields, harbors, and German troop concentrations in the west of France. She would write notes in invisible ink on sheet music, and in 1941, she and her entourage went to North Africa to continue helping the resistance. From a base in Morocco, she made tours of Spain and she penned notes with information she gathered inside her underwear, counting on the fact that she was a celebrity to avoid getting strip searched. She would have a miscarriage during this time and develop an infection so severe it required a hysterectomy. The infection spread and she would develop pertentis and then sepsis. But she was able to recover and she started touring to entertain British, French and American soldiers in North Africa. The Free French had no organized entertainment network for the troops. So her and her entourage managed most of this on their own. They would only allow soldier members and they didn't charge admission. After the war, she was awarded the Resistance Medal by the French Committee of National Liberation the Croix de Gris by the French military and was named a Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur by General Charles de Gallo. After the war, she would return to the U.S. and, like many during her time, faced racism and segregation. When she arrived with her husband, they were refused reservations at 36 hotels because she was black. She would be so upset by this treatment that she wrote articles about the segregation in the U.S., She began traveling to the South. She would give talks at Fisk University, which is a historically black college on France, North America, and the equality of races in France. She was invited for a nightclub engagement in Miami. After winning a public battle over desegregating that club's audience, she followed up with a national tour. After that incident, she began receiving threatening phone calls from people claiming to be the KKK, but she said publicly that she was not afraid of them. She had rave reviews at the time and enthusiastic audiences wherever she went. And she even had a parade in Harlem in honor of a new title that she was given, the NAACP's Woman of the Year. An incident at the Stork Club in October of 1951 pretty much interrupted this tour. She criticized the club's unwritten policy of discouraging black patrons and even scolded columnist Walter Winchild, who was an old ally of hers, for not rising to her defense. He would respond with a series of harsh public rebukes, including accusations of communist sympathies, which of course was a huge charge at the time. 
This essentially resulted in the termination of her work visa and she had to cancel all of her engagements and return back to France. It would be almost a decade before U.S. officials allowed her back into the country. A lot of her activism was sparked by these experiences. She worked with the NAACP and she had a reputation as a crusader. The NAACP even crowned Sunday, May 20th, 1951 as Josephine Baker Day. Even though she was this decorated war hero who was bolstered by the racial equality she experienced in Europe, she became increasingly regarded as this controversial figure. Some black people even began to shun her, fearing that her outspokenness and racy reputation from her earlier years would hurt their cause. In 1963, she spoke at the March on Washington right alongside Martin Luther King Jr. And she was the only official female speaker. She would wear her free French uniform emblazed with her medal of the Légion d'Honneur and she introduced, quote, the Negro woman for civil rights. But not everyone wanted Josephine present at the march and some people thought her time overseas had made her more of a woman of France who was disconnected from the civil rights issues going on in America. In her speech, one of the things that she would say is, quote, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents, and much more. But I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth. And then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. Throughout her life, as I mentioned, she was married multiple times, and she even went on to adopt 12 children from various countries. She wanted to show that children from different backgrounds could live together harmoniously. Even though she was married to men, John Claude Baker, one of her adopted sons, wrote that she was bisexual and had several relationships with women, although this was not something that she would confirm. She would refer to her children as, quote, the Rainbow Tribe. She often took her children with her cross-country And when they were at Chateau de Melandes, which was her home in France, she arranged tours so visitors could walk the grounds and see how happy and natural the children were. Her estate would feature hotels, a farm, rides, and the children singing and dancing for the audience. And she charged an admission fee to visitors who entered and partook in these activities. She forced one of her children, Jerry, to leave the Chateau and live with his adoptive father in Argentina at the age of 15, after she discovered that he was gay. One of her other children died of cancer in 1999, and another was diagnosed with schizophrenia and, as of 2009, was in a psychiatric hospital. Her son, John Claude Baker, committed suicide in 2015 at the age of 71. In her later years, Josephine would convert to Catholicism and she would lose her chateau owning to unpaid debts, at which point Princess Grace Kelly offered her an apartment near Morocco. In 1975, she started a retrospective review at the Bobino in Paris, which celebrated her 50 years in show business. That opening night audience included Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. Four days later, she was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with glowing reviews of her performance. She was in a coma after suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. She would be taken to the hospital where she died at the age of 68 on April 12, 1975. 
She received a full Catholic funeral and attracted more than 20,000 mourners. She also received full French military honors at her funeral and was the first American woman to ever receive such an honor in France. After she had a family service at the St. Charles Church in Monte Carlo, she would be interred at Monaco's Century de Monaco. Josephine Baker remains both an icon in the entertainment industry and as a figure in the fight for civil rights. Her impact on the culture, especially in France, is really undeniable. In fact, one of my early introductions to Josephine Baker, sadly, was a video by Carrie Hilson, which she portrayed her. In an online BBC magazine in 2014, Darian Royston, a historical dance teacher at RADA, credited Josephine with being the Beyonce of her day and bring the Charleston to Britain. She continues to influence celebrities more than a century after her birth. And in 2003, in an interview with USA Today, Angelina Jolie cited Josephine Baker as a, quote, model for the multiracial, multinational family she was beginning to create through adoption. Beyonce performed her banana dance at the Fashion Rocks concert at Radio City Music Hall in September of 2006. And two of her sons grew up to go into business together, running the restaurant Chez Josephine on Theater Row on 42nd Street in New York City. The restaurant celebrates Josephine's life and works. Her Chateau des Milies, a castle near Starlet where she had her home, is open to the public and displays her stage outfits, including her banana skirt. It also displays a lot of family photographs, documents, and her Legion of Honor medal. Most of the rooms at the Chateau are open for the public to walk through, including bedrooms with the cots where her children slept, her huge kitchen, and the dining room where she often entertained large groups of guests. In 2021, it was announced that Josephine would be honored with a Pathion burial, making her the first black woman to receive this high French honor. Throughout her life, Josephine Baker did break barriers and challenge societal norms. And she became this enduring symbol of resilience, talent, and activism. And there's no doubt that her legacy continues to inspire people, both in the entertainment industry and in the broader societal context. I do wonder, like many of those in the civil rights era, if she was disconnected from what was happening here in the States because she spent most of her time in France. But I'm not naive enough to think that she didn't experience racism while living abroad. She certainly had a astounding life filled with a lot of ups and downs. And her story is amazing, not only because she went from this abject poverty, but she became this celebrated woman around the world. And more importantly, a celebrated black woman around the world. If you've never heard of Josephine Baker, then her story is definitely one you should know. Thank you for joining me on an incredible journey through history with today's story. If you want to take a deeper dive into any of the women that I talk about on the podcast, you can visit historicallypodcast.com. There you can find additional resources and you can also let me know about women you want to hear about on the show. Make sure you subscribe to stay updated on future episodes and don't forget to leave a review and let me know how I'm doing. Thank you for being part of today's historical journey. And until next time, remember that her story is one you should know.